0: interest, to be honest, was really education. I found that I could get, learn information by inviting people, to come on, ask some questions. And as long as I enjoyed it and I learned, I felt it was worthwhile. One of the, I'm really excited today to have somebody who's been on before, I think a couple times, but I really learned not just so much from her, but from what I would say, so many different angles of attack. Mina Sirkin is a probate litigation specialist in Los Angeles. We'll get into what that means. But I just want to point out that I've, I've worked with her on cases where I worked with her client. I've worked on cases where I was the representing the special administrator where her client and another were fighting and they appointed a third party essentially to sell the property or special property, special administration to sell the property. I worked where my client was buying the property and we had some opposition with her seller and a little litigation. I've watched her work the courtroom. If you've ever seen Anybody in the LA County Court. She's like the bell of the ball as far as knowing everybody and, and and networking. And I believe at the core of it, that's how she's built her business. But most importantly, that's lessons for those of us who as professionals who will build our business. So I'm really excited to invite back my favorite guests and friends and teachers in the legal business, uh Mina Circan. Mina, thank you so much for coming
1: back. Thank you. And thank you for having me again. I think this is my third time on your show. And uh Happy to be here and happy to meet some of your new colleagues who are on this podcast or Zoom conference um, and hope to be able to contribute something today.
0: Well, you always do. And I have fun. So I think that my only criteria is if I enjoy it, it's good. If I don't enjoy it, we're not going to do it. So uh, it's glad to have you back as always. And and I know you've been busy and like I have been. So it's good to work into your schedule. So um, just by way of introduction, uh, you are... um, circuit law and it's not just your last name in law because there's more than just you involved in this There's more than just one circuit involved in this process so describe for me your practice and where you fit in and who else might fit in to that name
1: so um the firm actually is myself and my husband uh we're trying to groom some of our children to do some different aspects of law but so far we haven't been successful in getting them that interested but Hopefully, in the future, there'll be a couple more circles and uh, some ancillary yeah. legal businesses who will be interested in what we're doing. Uh, I do mostly uh, trust estates and conservatorship litigation, and my husband does estate planning and administration. So our practice is similar, but different aspects of the same practice area. But uh we've been doing this since nineteen ninety three together wow. um, and so it's been a long time. My hair got all white somehow somewhere in between <laughs> those two dates, but uh, thank God for her hair color uh so. <laughs>
0: So you passed uh, the bar at 14 years old. That is very impressive.
1: Yes, yes, I was definitely 14 years old. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> anyway, um but uh, it's nice to be here, and I'm I'm hoping to learn something from you guys today and how you uh, all interact with each other and contribute to each other's businesses, and hopefully, we'll all uh, be able to have some question and answers and be able to go uh, forward from there.
0: So I know that, you know, by interviewing attorneys, I know there's some that only do probate, there's some you know, probate administration, there's some that only do probate litigation and don't want touch administration, and there's some that do both, and there's some that do probate and estate planning, what I would call probate and avoiding probate, and some that, you know, do both, and some that do one exclusively or the other. So kind of share with us your, your philosophy or your thinking from a business point of view that you and your husband kind of do all of it. Um, I like that concept. I feel like you'll pick up your mistakes if you have to litigate for them or, or see the litigation on them. But kind of give me your philosophy as to why both you cover kind of the whole gamut, but then you also individually separate and specialize.
1: Oh, okay. Well, life circumstances sort of led us that way. Uh, when my husband was 40 years old, he had a heart attack. Ooh. So he no longer would engage in litigation litigation is very stressful uh you've got deadline after deadline after deadline and you know crazy family members fighting with each other so he opted at that time to do mostly planning and administration but we were both doing planning and administration and litigation for at the beginning and then he went his direction doing mostly planning and administration and i went the other direction uh, I could do all of them, but I tend not to do much planning anymore. So I, I can do, and I do some administration, um, but most of my practice uh, revolves around uh, about a good seventy five percent of it now involves representing professional fiduciaries. These are professional conservators and trustees um, in cases that where family members do not get along, so to speak. And then the balance of it is the family members actually fighting. So when I represent professional fiduciaries, they come in sort of in the middle of a fight. Um, They come in to resolve differences among siblings who generally fight over everything or children of a first marriage against a spouse of a second marriage where there's disputes about who will get the assets or who did what and when. Um, and then the majority of the other cases are conservatorship cases or incapacity cases where uh, mom or dad are ill, children are fighting against each other as to who's best suited to care for them. And the courts just won't have that. The courts are like, well, we don't look either one of you will pick a professional fiduciary. So that's where some of my clients come in to kind of take over and neutralize the fight, which then ends up resolving the cases in a good 90% of the cases.
0: What percentage of time are professional fiduciaries and attorney stepping in that role? And what percentage are exclusively do fiduciary work?
1: It's it's very difficult to gauge that in terms of percentage. But I would say that among what I've seen, i was going to gauge it uh, out of those cases where siblings are fighting uh maybe 50 percent will end up with a professional fiduciary right uh, either in mediation as a result of mediation or as a result of the court just pushing it that way uh, mostly one of those situations or a settlement sometimes right. kids just go settle in mediation and they say okay neither one of us or right when somebody can't get bonded, I think these are very important things for you guys to know is if, for example, if you were going to be appointed as an administrator or as a conservator, or you had a client who wants to become the administrator or the conservator, you'd have to know if they're bondable. Because right. if they're not bondable, the odds of success of that case is fairly low. Right you can you can go all the way to a conservatorship and win uh, in a conservatorship action get appointed and if you cannot post that bond you will not get the letters to be able to act as a conservator so you should talk to your clients if you have clients that are contemplating either probate uh without a will or conservatorship or a trust where they're not named as a trustee to know the concept of the bond. And I think that's important for any realtor.
0: Yeah,
1: because knowing whether or not your client can get bonded, will give you a lot of information about the client and suitability of the client, etc. Now, all you guys care about is if there's a property to sell. But in order to get there, and and you want to get somebody who's appointed, who's gonna lead you down to the path of the sale of the property, you need to know who the best suited person would be. Is Mm -hmm. it my own client? Because you have a client, let's just say that you think is gonna be the seller. When you ask the questions about bond, which, and I'm gonna give you a list of things to ask them. You find out the person is not bondable, you should be able to pivot and, and go grab the suitable professional fiduciary right to bring into the case so that the sale can actually happen right because otherwise it will just kind of like hang, hang up the case will just hang up because the client thought he can get a bond and he can't get a bond but having a relationship with uh, bonding agencies for you guys is really good mm-hmm. because before you get your client all riled up about them becoming the administrator for example right you can run them through a bond agency to see if they can get bonded if they can't get bonded regroup you know there's alternatives so um, here's a few questions if you want to know if your client is bondable these are the questions the bond or surety companies will ask your clients one is does your client have assets in the amount of the assets of the estate That's the first one. How's your client's credit? Has your client ever had a bankruptcy? And by ever, I'm gonna limit it to the last 10 years for for their purposes. Um, And most importantly, has your client or proposed administrator or conservator ever had a criminal action involving a any kind of theft crime because if the answer is yes to that last one the odds of a a surety company picking up your client for a bond is going to be very very small yeah even if it's just a small misdemeanor a theft crime Is one of those things that rings the bell at a uh, at an underwriters uh, desk, so to speak, at a surety company that says no, not this one. Um, The reason for that is a, a surety contract, a bond is an indemnity contract, so the way it works is that if the administrator messes up and the assets disappear, the surety company will pay. But the surety company has to go against that administrator and be able to recover its money. That's what the indemnity contract is. So their focus is to make sure that there's enough assets to recover from. That means that the guy's got to have some assets, that his credit is good, he's decent, um, and no criminal or theft crime in the past. And no bankruptcies, because that would show the financial stability of the proposed administrator. So any of those should be able to help you kind of gauge your client. Um, and you know, say, hey, you know, somebody's gonna want to become an administrator in this case, for example. You found a property, the owner's deceased, or the owner is incapacitated you need to be able to locate a, a suitable person to bring into the mix to be able to become to come into the shoes of the seller right so if you come into a question where you don't have you don't have a bondable person you can contact us and we can give you names of several fiduciaries that we represent and they can pop in and they can become the seller de facto so to speak in the contract, once they're appointed. So it helps your cases to know this piece of information.
0: 100%. Fun fact I had an attorney once who had somebody, and rather than a um, professional fiduciary, they asked me if I wanted to do it just because they knew I was interested in learning. I said, yeah, why not? And I, I, I agreed to charge a lower fee because I wasn't experienced at it, but it was, I knew how, all we had to do was sell the one property and present the paperwork. It's a lot of work. It's not it, It's not something I would do as a hobby ever again. It was educational, but I do think it's good to know <clears throat> that process. Just real quick, some, some housekeeping, so I can kind of say, say where we are. We're really lucky today to have um returning guest, Mina Circuit of Circuit Law. <clears throat> this is I think she's one of our three-time champions. Uh, she's in uh, the Valley of uh, Los Angeles, and the website is Uh This is probably weekly. We do this every... Uh, Thursday at 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m eastern we live stream it on youtube facebook and linkedin and then we also record it Uh, and then you continue the conversation if you want on facebook on our facebook group probateweekly.com we have 3600 members help us get to four thousand by posting questions we have some surveys people post their social media content there to get extra views your YouTube stuff on probate, limit to probate only. We don't want open houses and properties listings, but feel free to post your content there. I know Courtney Rollins has used it to help build his YouTube channel. And then if you want to, if you want to join the conversation, you go to probateweekly.com, and you can uh, sign up there to get the. You have to, need to update this. I'm sorry. Uh, you can sign up there to get the weekly registration of the Zoom link, as well as there you can scroll down and get the information on where we put the podcast, where it is on YouTube, and the other resources that we have as well. So love to have you guys join us there to continue the conversation. Um, you know, a binding, you know, interesting quite side note to that also is I found that oftentimes the same customer that can't get bonded, maybe low income, you know, low economic activity, right? They don't own a business. They haven't been making a lot of money. Maybe they're just an, uh, a child who's, who's been their parents' house for life not only may they not qualify for the bond, but even if they barely can kind of like squeezed in on an FHA loan on a purchase, that they're gonna have difficulty just managing the responsibilities of being the administrator, just signing the paperwork and making decisions and following instruction. Do you ever, um, I guess it's maybe a question more for your husband, but I know you've been around this enough. Do you ever find appropriate to suggest to a customer, hey, maybe we need a professional, not because we have a dispute and not because you can't get bonded, But just because it's a lot of work, and a lot of paperwork, and we want to get this sold quickly, a professional is going to help move things along a little bit. Have you ever been in that position?
1: Yes, it does. But but that puts us, if we're representing somebody, that puts us in a conflict situation. So we could give them names of people that we don't represent, and if that's an appropriate situation. So, yeah, we could do that. Um, There are other people who cannot become administrators. I want to distinguish administrators versus executors. And those are differences between the two. An administrator has to be a U.S. resident. An executor doesn't, okay? But generally, if you have anybody who wants to become an administrator or an executor, if they're outside of uh, California, they have to post a bond. Even if right. the even if you have a will that says no bond, our courts require that a bond be posted if the executor is out of California. And if you have somebody who says to you, hey, you know, I live in Canada and I want to become an administrator of my family members' estate, and just say, no, nope, administrators generally cannot be non-US residents. So know that little piece of information for yourself. I see one of uh, our professional fiduciaries on your list. I see Rich Bar who hmm. is who um, is in in this case, he's here, I can see him. He's, yeah. he's one of the professional fiduciaries that um, we've worked with before. Oh, and he is a really nice man. You could pick his brain about what he does and talk to him about, you know, various types of cases that he will accept um which so is a
0: past guest on our show oh wonderful he and I yeah. share a mutual friend I have another friend who's a professional fiduciary who has a podcast on that and had rich on. rich was great he's a great guest he not he was not mean a great
1: oh. but he was
0: really really good oh. so yeah no we like rich and rich is, cool a,
1: rich is a very good guy and who was your other friend
0: um Kevin Bemmel
1: I, I don't. So, know Kevin's that.
0: newer as a fiduciary. He just uh, got licensed recently, but he's been a property management, uh, commercial property manager for a long time. So, it's an interesting niche where he wants to be able to help estates that have portfolios of property that need to be managed professionally, as well as bringing the expertise of the viewpoint of commercial uh, property management to it as well.
1: Interesting. Oh, mm-hmm. There's a niche for everybody. Um, you know,
0: I, I, it's funny you say that because I think it's so true that, you know, the thing about you that um i learned this you know i i'm excited i met you and you were really helpful to me and i wanted to pay you back and so anytime anybody mentioned the word they need an attorney and probate i would call you and i realized you know you have a fairly i don't want to say narrow niche because that sounds negative but a defined clear niche and and i think that's what makes it clear that um you know and also demonstrates your expertise that you do probate litigation now you'll do some administration and your husband does estate planning and probate administration as well. But you personally, uh, and, and, you know, litigation fits certain narrow parameters and doesn't meet other parameters. So talk a little bit about that. You, you know, so many attorneys, and I know you meet them too, have a website with 2000 different specialties, (laughs) but you're so clear. Um, you know, I'm sure at some point you're afraid, Hey, if I say I'm just going to do probate litigation, they won't call me for the things. It took some courage to do that. What was it, that decision like?
1: I, I don't uh, honestly, I don't remember how it came about or if it was actually a decision, but we've never done anything else other than what's in the probate area. So w- when we first started out, it 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 kind of narrowed itself down the road. And it's, it's becoming actually, to be honest with you, is narrowing even further I think having a niche is important because A, it sets you apart from the other people. B, it specializes you in, in what you do. You tend to grab information from wherever you're at pertaining to that niche. And you know they say in, in marketing, n- niching is important. N- yeah. n- a niche itself could be an entire market that you have ignored before so find out what niches there are within the real estate market i'm sure there's a lot of them um i just you know we're just in one little corner of it but i'm sure that there is there are many different niches where you're at first of all location i suppose is a niche right geography geography and it used to be what, what was called farm areas do farm areas still exist
0: Yeah. I mean, there are people who that's their niche, right? So there are people who have a pick an area and say, well, this is my niche. It's 500 homes and I'm going to walk it every 90 days. And that becomes their niche. They know if you know every house in that area, you become an expert.
1: Right. Years ago, um, there was a gentleman um, and I want to remember that he wrote a very interesting book um, and it escapes the name escapes me exactly, but something about a shark. And the concept of his marketing was that your database is your best friend. And that if you don't have a database, you don't have a business and it really holds true. I mean, your big database tells you everything about anyone you've ever met. So within your niche or even outside of your niche, I suppose that you want to ha- capture all the information. About everyone that you speak to, because yes. that at some point that comes in handy. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I spoke to somebody about three years ago, and they they spoke to me about a guardianship, and you know I didn't think anything of it. I just you know gave them the information they needed at that moment, and I just kept it in my database and my database of people to at some point contact it's just a spreadsheet. It's not magical. So I give it a date. I give it a time where I need to revisit this person. So I revisited this person a couple times in between and still nothing had happened. But today, I got a call from them that they are ready to go proceed with this guardianship of the estate of this child. So it it sometimes takes two years for that database to produce something for you right and sometimes it right. does and sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. but un, un, unless you have it and you have touched base with that person a couple times they've forgotten you and i think that's holds true
0: i think you're having percent right and i you know within our business and probate now i'm in l.a county we are the largest or second largest probate mark in the country atlanta might be bigger depends how you count it but similar, but we have the largest one corp building of probate in one spot. Atlanta's multiple, the city of Atlanta has multiple counties. And so it's divided up even more than LA is. <clears throat> but even within LA County probate, we have multiple niches, right? We have we have realtors who specialize in auctions for the county as a county vendor. We have another company that specializes in auctions that are public, uh, private auctions. We have people specializing in really high end um uh probate business we have people who really work with the bar associations and the organizations and in and, and there's people with seniors and people who work with accountants and wealth management and so many different niches within the niche that too often people think oh i've got a certification of probate i'm an expert in it no and the thing that struck me about you was and maybe talk a little bit about it is that you i could just tell that you still have a thirst for knowledge well i remember pre-covid i would meet with you in the um the uh cafeteria on the top of the building and, and like one after another some of the leading attorneys would walk by and you would start a conversation and ask a question and I felt like I was getting a PhD in probate just sitting next to you with these people and then remember years ago there was a guy who was the attorney with the cowboy boots Gary Gary um, Rittenberg yeah. he would like hold court every morning and you would sit there next to him and again he was like a professor of law like giving you probate uh history almost um and that you would learn that when you get to a niche you there's never any process of learning that becomes your competitive advantage talk to me a little bit about that because you obviously enjoy it it's it's one thing to say it's your business but if you enjoy it then it's not really business
1: it's it's a it's a never-ending process of learning and and learning changes um before AI came along we were doing things a certain way um now I have I've had to regroup and kind of like learn what AI is and how I can use it in my practice. So I have a very funny story to tell you that learning made one of my cases settle. So I, to just to give you an example, somebody had filed a creditors claim, actually, in a case, you know, and you sold the property. Mm-hmm. Um, the girlfriend filed a creditors claim for four hundred and twenty nine thousand dollars in this case. After she had lost on an oral will, she decided to file a creditors claim. Oh, I missed
0: that part of the story. Missed that
1: part of the story. So she had three pages of line items that she thought she was owed by this decedent. Well, this creditor claim is not that easy to decipher, so we'd rejected it, and she filed a civil suit to try to, to get some money out of that. So I had to quickly figure out, you know, of these items that she had on her list, some of them were before data death, some were after date death, they were all over the place and date, there was no, they weren't listed by date or type or category, but a new type of learning called ChatGPT allowed me to cut and paste her spreadsheet in as data into ChatGPT and I had it essentially sorted by date so that i could identify what was before date of death and what was after date of death and by type and believe it or not it helped settle that case because it showed that data to the civil judge by groups and it it helped settle that case for $23,000 out of $429,000 so.
0: after all that time and I've how much that did she get that. you have attorneys and charges and fees i'm just curious what she ended up in her pocket
1: She's gonna end up with nothing because she's spent more than twenty three thousand.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I don't know how much of this case we can talk about. We're not gonna name it so we can kind of talk about it generally for sure. And you're welcome to add color to it. But this is a case where I was sitting in court one day and I saw these two attorneys, and I didn't know either one of them really. They both seem nice, uh, where you know, one wanted to be the petitioner, the other one to be a petitioner, and I kind of reached out to both of them and said, Hey, you know, I I specialize in um court confirmation sales and i'd be glad to work with both of you i feel good working with attorneys and fortunately they both you know selected me to to represent the special administrator to sell the property there's a case where a woman had a as a girlfriend claimed she was the wife if i remember right she claimed she was the wife but had no proof right she had no marriage cert she had no evidence but she claimed she was married
1: in our case, I don't think she was married. She was. She claimed she was engaged.
0: Engaged. Okay. To be married. But she has no legal rights when you're engaged in probate. You have no, no. Uh, so, what was the thesis? And how does I I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how how does an attorney, like to me from the beginning, it just seemed ridiculous. Like what? And you must look at these claims sometimes and go, what the heck are these guys thinking? It's not going to go anywhere other than waste time and money.
1: So her theme originally was an oral contract to make a will. That, that was her original theme. Um, she lost on that, that went to trial, she lost on that. Then she didn't give up so easily and she decided that she was gonna file a creditors claim and uh, ask the court to give her money for things that she claimed she had spent for the decedent. So that was her next scheme, but it it didn't go over very well, but it did end up settling, so you know that that's sort of where it's at but people come out of the woodworks when someone dies they believe they're entitled that there's this sense of entitlement not just by children sometimes by caregivers sometimes by girlfriends sometimes by friends sometimes by people who are neighbors and they just you know brought a few meals to the guy it could be anything but in, in terms of you know um being ready for the sale of property, as far as you're concerned, knowing these dynamics is pretty important because I may come to you and say, I'm, you know, I'm a seller. Uh, I want to sell it. You first have to go figure out if I'm really, truly that seller, because I could, I could believe let, let's just say I was a caregiver and I had taken Mrs. Smith, to we the people and have them prepare a trust for her name myself as a beneficiary and you want to sell the property you think that that's the person who you're going to be dealing with but it actually may not end up that way so if knowing the background knowing the relationship of your the person you're talking to to the owner of the property is important because as soon as you find out their caregiver (coughs) you need to know all the possibilities that could happen in that case one of which could be an elder abuse action
0: yeah definitely um okay so just some quick housekeeping real quick this probate weekly we do this every thursday 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m eastern time um and um uh if you have questions this is meant to be participative so feel free to raise your hand put it in the chat box in the zoom or if you're watching on youtube or linkedin or facebook those questions come into our call on youtube specifically bob Dorman asked um can you speak about key points about placing items in the trust so in the case that we dealt with or almost any probate case um, almost any probate case creating a trust between putting the assets there will most likely most often avoid probate true or false
1: most often
0: more often than not more than 50 percent of the time more than 70 percent of the time
1: Good, seventy percent of the time.
0: Ooh, look at that number, seventy percent, not ninety. Okay, <laughs> from a probate litigator, uh, this is yeah. this is good. I wish I had a newspaper headline. Mina Circus says trust void probate seventy percent of the time. Uh, seventy <laughs>
1: percent.
0: Let's talk about that. What does that mean?
1: Well, it means that the other thirty percent of the time, there's either a problem with the title of the property. <laughs> sometimes the the. Deed didn't get recorded till after date of death. Sometimes the person was incompetent when the deed was signed, transferring Mm. it to the trust. Mm. Sometimes the person had no right on their own to transfer the property to the trust because Mm. they didn't have a any fee simple ownership Mm. in the property. I had a situation where somebody who had a life estate in the property. Was attempting to transfer their interest in the property into their trust, but all they had was a life estate. They didn't have a fee simple. So when I say third seventy percent, you know that that's a pretty decent number there.
0: Well, okay, you deal in a little bit of a jaded world because you're in litigation yeah. to begin with. So yes. let me ask the question a different way: If 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 I was your son and you're advising me, and, I, and you know I own a house, and you know that I'm competent, and you know I own a property fee simple, yeah. what's the percentage of likelihood of me avoiding probate by putting the property to trust versus holding it personally?
1: If you have no, none of these things that we just talked about.
0: Assuming I am I own the property, you know me, I'm your son, you know I'm legitimate, you know I'm competent. 100%. You
1: know,
0: you, ooh, 100%. 100%.
1: 100%. Yeah, if, if you have no complications, now I'll, I'll bring complications into the mix, okay? You're my son, okay, I gave you $100,000 to put down as a down payment on the house, you then bought the house, kept the title in your name, transferred it to your trust, then got married, and then things kind of went wonky from there, you and your wife started to pay the mortgage on this house from your community earnings, Ooh. What happened? Okay.
0: Both sides are hiring attorneys. I know that much happens.
1: You're a son of an attorney. Your your mother's telling you, you should have had a um, prenuptial agreement. And you said, not a chance. Love this girl, really. And I'm not gonna have a prenuptial agreement no matter what you say. I said, well, where's my $100,000 that I gave you for the down payment? And you say, that's too bad. Um, And then a few years down the road, maybe six, seven years down the road, you're my son, you screwed up somehow. And your wife says, I'm filing for divorce. Guess what happens to that property that you bought and put in that trust?
0: It's clouded by the litigation or the respect litigation.
1: So the family law judge in that divorce proceeding will yank it out of your trust for yeah. you. Yeah. And uh, it will not be fully your separate property. If you're a California resident in California, we have community property law. I don't know if the rest of your listeners here are in California or in other states, which may or may not have community property, but things do happen, you know, yep. you know, 100% of time. Now, when I say 100% of the time, the, concept of putting in the trust is always a good idea don't get me wrong right the concept of your expectation that it'd be a hundred percent it just isn't reality
0: it's not reality in fact let me ask you another question true or false the more money in a trust the more likely there is to be some sort of litigation absolutely it just doesn't matter how good the trust is or how legitimate it is if there's enough money there somebody's going to litigate for their share of it. It's just, how, it's just the, a, a, yes. a science law.
1: It, it, well, just like anything else, the, it depends on what what stakes there are. If they are, the, the greater the stakes, the more likely it is that people would want to go grab it. The more likely that lawyers will be more interested in taking the case, too. Right. So if you have a $200,000 case, had I known, for example, that the, 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 the case that I've worked on would have two lawsuits that I may or may not have taken that case. It depends on the 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 amount of the assets. But right. sometimes you go in there and you think, oh, this is a simple case, simple right. sale, nothing right. doesn't turn out to be true.
0: Should have been simple that one it's, it's hard to right. the whole thing to understand. Just real quick, an advertisement on behalf of the Jewish people. I will point out that we're the ones who invented marriage contracts. The basic marriage uh, ceremony of Jewish people, to this day, involves a, a prenuptial agreement that's uh, read out loud and undisplayed to everybody at the at the wedding. So I just want to say, uh, go Jewish people, we've had marriage right uh, from the beginning. And I also will add, we had the Book of Divorce in our ancient text before the Book of Marriage, because divorce law was uh, anticipated by those wise men in that time. So just I'm just not a family law practitioner or anything, but I'm just saying, go Jewish people. We've had that under control.
1: Those are very, very interesting things that that are sometimes discovered from ancient times. Um, I had a chance to go on the internet, internet one day and I came across a website that talked about how different tribes in the Middle East, I'm Iranian, um, different tribes in the middle east handled divorces and it it was fascinating because it went all the way from Egypt and came to Iran and you realized wow they had a system they actually had a system that worked for them you know thousands of years ago before we got here Um, but interesting cases uh come about Mm. what else have um bill today that uh, people would be interested in
0: well okay so um Let's talk a little bit about the business parameters of litigation, because I'm sure like me, you get phone calls where people say, you know, I'm wronged. Uh, I should be the uh, administrator or I should be the beneficiary of a trust. And my bad brother is in control and he's not sharing information with me and I need an attorney to to sue. And it, it, it's almost like as if, you know, you rent a car, you walk in with a credit card, you swipe it, you get the attorney and you file a lawsuit. It doesn't really work that way you really need to have some money there's got to be a certain amount at risk what are the economics for a litigation case to make sense in a probate setting if you're let's say um one of the siblings and think that you you know somebody filed the probate that you think you have standing over or you think they're not really qualified what what does it take to hire an attorney to uh, get involved in a case of litigation like that
1: it depends on the type of case that you have sometimes you're talking about a trust contest, for example. And and, in a trust contest, you have to, let's assume that for part of the reason why you wanna contest is you believe the person that wrote up the trust was not competent at the time they wrote it. So the, the kind of cost that you would expect to be able to have to withstand is someone's gonna have to go get medical records of this person. Then you have to have some expert witness come and testify as to the competency of the mother as of that time. Those expert witnesses are expensive. They can cost ten to fifteen thousand dollars on the front end just to review your documents, your medical records, and then if they have to come to a trial, that's another twenty thousand dollars. So they get expensive. They, you know, and you know, in conservatorships too. Our expert witnesses, you know, they come in to examine the conservative for a limited amount of money, but if they have to come to trial, they're charging you on an hourly basis. So you have to be prepared to pay them. You know, I have expert witnesses that I've used and, you know, I am the responsible person. So the dynamics of taking on a litigation case involve around knowing what the anticipated costs of litigating it all the way to trial will be. So, for example, if you came to me today and you said, you know, my mom had a trust, my my brother was a trustee, but he stole from this trust. I know it. I know it because his accounting really looks bad. I say, okay, fine. Let me look at the accounting. Okay, yeah, the accounting has some flaws, maybe. um, But I need to go subpoena documents. That's bank records, financial institution records. That's a cost to me, not counting my time that I'm gonna have to go hire a forensics accountant. That's 40 to $70,000 to trial. So I have to gauge whether or not, A, if I come into this case pretty quickly, if the amount I could possibly recover from my client is gonna cover that. Because if I come in into the case, into a trust content, into a trust accounting case, and I am not able to, show that there was something wrong and if i've objected to this accounting if i lose my client pays the attorney
0: look you see how i'm washing my hair with a
1: good manufacturer
0: it's a rotation It's all rotation when you wash your hair it's just straight rotation rotate to the left there
1: we go what was that
0: that was somebody bombed in it was a a zoom bomber how does and that happen? so i let people um, unmute themselves to ask questions, just to make it simpler. And some people abuse that. And this, there are people whose hobby is signing up for Zoom calls, coming in, and doing that. Sometimes they'll put in really obscene material, like you know, pornographic or common uh, Hitler speeches. Uh, it, it's, I, I've had you know, i had that happen over Zoom calls over time. This group pretty much is all registered. I, I'm not sure how he snuck through. So I'm usually pretty good at catching him. He he snuck in fast. So uh, that was he was pretty good, but I got him. So there we go. I'm sorry about that.
1: Okay, that's all right. Um, no I just don't know where they come from, but that's all right. Anyway, so they are interesting, you know, there are interesting aspects of litigating a case, and the dynamics are you got to know what the costs will be when by the time you're done with the case, because a you may not be able to recover your own costs that you've advanced and B, if your client loses, which depends on how good your case is, that your client is going to end up paying the other people's attorneys fees, and that would not be a happy occasion.
0: Right, that can be really expensive, the whole whole process, and then you wasted the expenses along the way too.
1: That's right. That's right. And you're paying out of pocket to hire these experts. And because the expert's not going to wait. The expert's
0: not on a contingency. You know, I had a, I had a, my experience personally with a um, forensic accountant was I had this guy harassing me, sue me, former boss, terrible human being, just abusive, purely abusive. And he claimed I stole certain things, certain data from him, uh, my email database of all things, or his. And he hired a Frux accounting company. I said, well, you know, here's my list. Why don't you send me your list? We'll have the accountant review them and see which ones are overlap and which ones are mine. And the forensic accountant sent me the list of the results of his findings. But what he did was he took an Excel spreadsheet and just hid the ones, the master list. So he sent me an Excel spreadsheet of all the data that I was accused of stealing and hid the values that I didn't. But if he hit the unhide button, there was all the data I was accused of stealing. (laughs) And I know that he paid $40,000, $50,000 to his accountant to do the work. Uh, and uh, and and the, the the there's all kinds of ramifications as a result of that. But yeah, these guys are very expensive. And um, uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, there's legitimate cases. I, I interviewed somebody who won an elder law case. He was an attorney out of Orange County, uh, an appeal attorney, where a, a woman in Long Beach was abused by a real estate investor, investor who had her sign over property and told her. I'm going to help you avoid foreclosure. And in fact, he just stole the property from her. And he sued her and won like a multi, like a five or six million dollar verdict. Wow. And in that case, she had a family member who was willing to invest cash. Up, to, they were fairly well to do, and they put in a hundred and hundred fifty thousand dollars of expenses and fees. And and but it continued. And at that point, they said, "Well, we can't even. We're we're tapped out at hundred fifty thousand dollars." And the attorney agreed to take a contingency, whatever. He made a deal with them. Mm-hmm. And they won, and it all worked out for everybody. But it's a lot of money, and a lot of work, and a lot of time uh, to go through this process. So,
1: tons. And and I think that you know people don't realize that as somebody declines, that the risks even for realtors get greater and greater, because if you take on a, a client who is a seller who's really on the slope of the decline, you can't really. Right. Sometimes you can't tell real well right, you could end up in in an elder abuse action. So investigating the well being of your client is important and talking the more you talk to a seller, the more you find out about the the way they're thinking, whether or not they're able to remember something whether or not they're not and kind of, you know, over a period of time, you, you get to have a feel for it. And sometimes my gut feel feeling may say the cop the the client's not competent to right. retain me
0: right
1: sometimes I, I'd like to help a, a person and then I realize that you know that that person is not at the stage where they could withstand litigation
0: right
1: um uh, in a year's time they may be here now cognitively but they may be here right next year at trial so you have to kind of also know what to do when that does happen, and it will happen.
0: I also think, in my experience, that the people at those stage of their life have parts of the day they're cognitive and parts of the day they're not.
1: Yes. And so
0: you might pick the time of day that's best for them. You might say, well, they they're best at ten or eleven in the morning, so I'll go over and talk to them. And you know, as a real estate agent, that's when they want me to show up. But you know, two in the afternoon, they're like starting to really limit themselves, maybe. Mm-hmm. And in litigation, they're going to be deposed, they'll be hearing dates, and they'll be, you know, that they'll have to show up for. It. And it, it's not so simple, you have to kind of think through the whole process. So, what are some of the signs, you know, as a professional uh, you, I, I hate you.
1: a Jew, motherfucker. You and listen, I love Hitler. Hi, Hitler.
0: There you go. This guy got into I saw him from the beginning, I knew he was going to do that, not let anybody else in the, in the call. So, boy, it's a shame that. Well, let me just lock the meeting room here, real quick. okay. Yeah. See, so there you go. That next one was Hitler and the next one was the pornography, but I was a little too quick to get him off, uh, let him get off to that one. Um, um,
1: anyway, so the, uh, I lost track of what we were saying. Sorry about that.
0: We're talking about, you know, how, how their cognitive impairment and how you have to think about it a year down the road. And I would say also even parts of the day. And, and, and I had occasion frankly, where I met with somebody and didn't think about it and the family member called me and said, well, did not you notice this or that? I said, well, yeah, I see marginal, but they seem to be you know, aware. And he said, "Well, you know, they're really not." And they have you know, good times and bad times. And so you, now you have to be aware and and legally. So what what would you advise a real estate agent? You know, it's one thing. You know, if if they if they don't need a conservatorship and they can act on their own, uh, right? Or if they can act, get acting own, they need a conservatorship. How would you coach me in the middle as to what the right decision is? Obviously, if you have a question, get a second opinion you know, uh, error being conservative. But that said, there are people who aren't going to get, it. you know, aren't going to get a conservatorship appointed. They're not that incapacitated. um What advice would you give a professional in the field dealing with people in this stage?
1: Okay, well, there's a, a few different ways. First of all, you have to kind of gauge where they're at on the spectrum of cognitive ability. The way we figure out if somebody has capacity is we have to figure out, if they understand the consequences of the action, not just of the sale itself, but what happens after the sale. So when you talk to somebody at 10 o'clock in the morning, oh, they're very excited about the sale of their house. And then maybe when you talk to them at four or five o'clock where, you know, people tend to be more declining, you know, in their cognitive uh, areas, if you say, Excuse me. If you say, okay, you told me this morning or you told me yesterday morning that you want to sell your house. So where are you going to go?
0: Oh, where
1: are you going to go? Because that's, you've got to have to figure out if they can actually, they have actually formulated a picture of where they're going. Let's say you sold the house. Where are you going to go? Do you have anybody that lives in the other town? Let's say I want to move to Phoenix. Do you have anyone that lives in Phoenix? Do you know how much houses cost in Phoenix if you wanted to buy? Are you gonna buy, are you gonna rent? Then the next question is, you know, we're gonna have to clear out your house to get it sold. What happens if the house is so impacted that you're gonna have to hire professionals to clean up at that house? Who'll pay for that cost? And you wanna ask them in advance if they have any uh, advanced planning documents, like a power of attorney, because if they have one and you look at it and you see the word durable on it, durable means that even if they become incompetent, that document's okay. If that exists, then you're one step further. The next step is to ask them, who are the agents in your durable power of attorney? Are they still around? Maybe you had one from 10 years ago, but your agents died, right? you know? So the conse- knowing the consequences is important. If they cannot tell you where the agents live, if they cannot tell you, for example, that the consequence of selling their house may be that they may have a substantial capital gains tax or that they don't understand that concept, that that, that comes out of their net proceeds, maybe that's not the client you want to take. So test them in all these different areas to know mm-hmm. that- understand the consequences of their action and if your instinct is telling you that they're not talk to your broker in charge and that broker in charge usually has counsel that they can talk to and kind of go through all these different various scenarios of what they don't understand or and document in your notes what you talk to them about what they understood and what they didn't understand so that you can better gauge the competence of the person and it would also prevent a possibility of a future lawsuit if you're able to have all the elements and the documents that you need in hand in case mm-hmm. the person becomes competent incompetent.
0: Is is are you as an attorney able to make those assessments? Or at least, um, you know. A preliminary value assessment as somebody's competence, or is that is that strictly a medical decision that you're going it's, to defer?
1: It's mostly a medical decision, but the signs before somebody gets medically tested come from lay people. They come from attorneys. They come from realtors. They come from caregivers, family members who are around the person, neighbors. Um, the The initial signs come from people who just you know make observations so uh, sometimes somebody comes to my office and if i have gotten to the first three steps of you know understanding the consequences and i realize that the third step that yeah you know it's not going all that great i will ask that if they want to proceed further that they actually go get examined by a doctor because at that point i'm not capable of Positively identifying whether or not they're competent or not, and competency is kind of on a scale, Um, the the lowest level of competency you'd be surprised is is marriage. So you can be an idiot and still get married and
0: oh for sure
1: yeah so so as far as the (laughs) law is concerned, the highest level of competency is a complex contract. And even with contracts there's complex and simple contracts. A little higher than marriage is a will anybody can do a will as as long as they have a basic understanding of who their loved ones are and their assets. Then the next level up is a trust trust is more complex than a will, so you have to be a little bit more savvy cognitively to be able to do a trust than a will and a power of attorney also is a contract is is analyzed kind of like a contract so it's on a higher level of capacity Mm -hmm. so it has a very interesting spectrum of things so a transfer by a deed is one of the highest uh levels it requires one of the highest levels of competency well in case you need to know that
0: no i mean it makes sense because these are complicated transactions and the financing and tax implications and people getting paid lot, so, you know, I'm the business. There's a lot of moving parts. Sometimes I, I lose track. And I have to go back to my notes and figure it out. And for lay people all the time, they're overwhelmed. Even smart people, you know, we deal with these transactions all the time and we assume they know everything. And I find myself running ahead too fast, you know, regularly that to slow down. Let alone somebody who's older and slower and maybe medically impaired, not even cognitively. Just, you know, they're just tired. And you talk to somebody for an hour, they get tired at some point. Um, it's funny, I, I get both you know, they want more time explaining things, but then they run out of gas before you spend all the time explaining everything. And that requires some skills. So you know, kind of last question for me, because we're coming up at the end of the hour. I've seen you in court. I know you to be a fierce, competent, prepared, sharp sharp elbow litigator attorney, uh, intellectual powerhouse. And at the same time, I've seen you work with customers, and, or I'm sorry, clients would be the term, uh and, and and offer the communication and the soft skills of of business right so how to me that's the one failing of attorneys to struggle is they tend to have more in the intellectual piece down they really struggle with the communication and the soft skills how did you focus in on that and what do you do to keep yourself on track on that part of your practice
1: that's a constant learning and and that's constantly you have to practice that I I don't think it came naturally to me at the beginning i've had to really work on it over the years uh, over and over again, and I often have to remind myself that. The the other person that i'm talking to on the other side of the phone is just a person with some trouble they just want somebody to help them and i'm on this other side of the, the phone and i'm trying to gauge the efficacy of their case but. The other person needs to know that you're there to help them, and I think it works the same way with real estate agents. I so, think they, they they have the the person who's going to hire you has a problem, right? Because you have you're trying to solve their problem. The problem is in your case that they they may want to sell because and that because is important. So you have the benefit of going into people's homes and talking to them in person. And you could tell a lot by being inside of somebody's house. If you're there inside of their home and you see that the house is in shambles, there's several possibilities. Either they didn't have the funds to take care of it, they had a traumatic event that depressed them so much that they couldn't take care of themselves in their house anymore or they're on a cognitive decline, or they're lost a spouse. I mean, all of these things are signs that you're able to pick up to try to solve their problem. Nice. Sometimes solving their problem or the soft skill may be, hey, can I help you get somebody to clean up the hallway so that, that they can walk through it? Sometimes it might be that. But it's a it's a constant um, practice that to remind yourself that I'm here to help somebody resolve their problem.
0: Well, look, I again, as always, I always learn so, so much from you. I, I, I miss seeing you in the courthouse. Um, uh, <clears throat> I know it's efficient to be on uh, video. And I made all more efficient when the uh, COVID kind of changed the structure. But I think what uh, a lot of people lost. Certainly, the next generation lost was a, little, a lot of the collegiality and camaraderie of being there and learning and just listening to the masters of the industry talk. And I know I would see you there, uh, listening to them. And I would sit next to you, listening to them, listen to them myself. So you know, I really appreciate you coming on our call here again, sharing with yourself what you're doing uh, for everybody on this call. This uh, the attorney we had today is Mina Sirkin of Sircan Law at SircanLawGroup.com. We'll have the description her contact info and website and all that. Uh, but Mina, on behalf of everybody today, I just want to thank you so much for your commitment, your professionalism, and your willingness to share and educate uh, our industry and uh, the uh, hobby industry at large.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And as always, I'm happy and pleased to talk to anybody who, who has any issues pertaining to this area. Again, Bill, I hope to see you soon in person again.
0: Look forward to it. Thank you, Mina.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye now. <clears throat>
0: And for everybody else, this is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. You go to probateweekly.com. You can sign up for the Zoom call if you want to come in and ask questions. Love to bring you in and ask the guests live. <clears throat> if you watch this on the live stream on YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, or Facebook, you can ask questions live there as well, or after the fact, and we'll get back to them. Thank you, everybody. Oh, by the way, I have a new podcast I just launched. Uh, recently called real estate ripoff holding big corporations accountable. It's been a big success. I had an episode on Zillow, one on Redfin. The one coming out this week will be on the credit reporting agencies. I just feel like I've been in this business for 37 years. And I think these big companies have really been beating up on us consumers. And it's time for somebody to just tell the truth and air the truth about what's going on. So uh, feel free if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll see the podcast there uh, as well as Private Weekly. Thank you all for your support. See you guys soon. Have a great day.